Welcome to the Stand Up Tragedy Podcast. My name's Dave and I'm your host. And I'm here in the city of Edinburgh with the rest of the Stand Up Tragedy team putting together an hour of tragic variety every night, 7.30 at the Banshee Labyrinth Banqueting Hall, venue 156, as part of the Free Fringe. So come along and see some tragedy. If you know people who are in town, tell them about it. Every night's going to have a completely different lineup. We've got comedians, we've got spoken word artists, we've got musicians, we've got storytellers, and we've got so much more. Every single night, a different combination of people creating a completely different flavour of tragedy. So come along, tell your friends, and come and join us for some tragedy. Apologies for not putting out the best of stand-up tragedy that we were hoping to put out in the run-up to the Edinburgh Festival. We sort of skipped a week in our podcast schedule. I hope that didn't upset anyone too much. It was just the way things went down in terms of everybody being busy and everybody being in different places. And it just didn't come together for that one. But we're going to make it come together while we're at the Fringe. Audio we don't use at the Fringe will be going out in podcasts later in the year. We're going to be releasing podcasts here pretty regularly but we're going to be regular and erratic because tragically we have not got wi-fi in the flat that we have up here so we're having troubles getting the brilliant audio that we're recording out to you but we're going to get one episode out a week which is basically one of the shows in its entirety from beginning to end and we're going to get one show out that is the best of the rest where i select some clips from the other shows and present them to you Today you're going to hear our first night. This is what happened on the 2nd of August, live at the Banshee at 7.30pm till 8.25. We've got a really great lineup of people. They all have shows. You should go to all of their shows. All of their shows will be excellent. So sit back, relax and prepare yourself for the tragedy. Okay, so I think we are going to start now. That's okay. People can come in any time they like. It's never a bad time to come upon some tragedy, I think. Okay. Yes, exactly. Right. So, hello, everybody. Welcome to Stand Up Tragedy. My name's Dave, and I'm your host. And what we do at Stand Up Tragedy is we stand up and we do tragedy. Uh, we're a variety night, so we're going to have some comedy, we're going to have some spoken word, we're going to have some storytelling. Different nights uh, during the festival, we've got a, different, a completely different lineup every night. So if you like what you see today, come back tomorrow. You may not like that, but who knows? Uh, uh, but yes, a different lineup every night. Sometimes we'll have music, sometimes we'll have all sorts of exciting things uh, for you to share with you. We're also a podcast, uh, so you can listen back to what what happens tonight we're going to be podcasting tonight assuming all the tech goes right um, and you can find that on iTunes and Stitcher and SoundCloud and all places where podcasts hang out on the internet uh, we, and uh, what I would say is that t- tonight uh, I don't know what the performers are going to do um, and what, whatever they do is going to be potentially tragic so consider this a warning as in tragedy involves sad things uh, deaths dark things so if you uh, you know just be aware that that could happen like it can in in real life really any anywhere you go but uh, it's probably almost definitely going to happen in this room tonight so be prepared um and i we're we're sharing the tragedy during the festival with the hashtag tragic moments on twitter um we've also uh put together especially well we didn't somebody did it for us uh and you can uh we've put together the smell of tragedy a scent of tragedy, because we're interested in tragedy in, it, in all its forms. And so uh, you can find, uh, about, find out about scenting performances and other things at uh, muteandinvisible.com. Uh, but when you go out, if you put some money into our hat, we'll give you a squirt of the tragic smell. Um, and what I should say about that is the audience in London voted on which was going to be the tragic smell. And the one they went for was the smell of uh, cleanly, fresh, crisp linen which doesn't sound tragic initially, right? Well, I'm glad, actually, because the other ones were like tragic drunk and uh, tragic, tragic war. So this is the nicest smell. But it's an interesting one because the smell of fresh linen is something that you do smell at tragic times in life, like when your partner has left you or uh, when somebody has died. So 
I think it works really well, and you can get a smell of it later on. And we've also got some tragic snaps that were put together by uh, a, a writer called Jay Adamthwaite, and you can find out uh, more about that at uh, jadamthwaite.com. Uh, but they're like party poppers with little tragic stories in, so that's another thing you can get if you put your money in the hat. Otherwise, you can just look at other people's and uh, it, love them from afar uh, and feel the tragedy inside yourself that you don't have them. So we've relaunched our blog starting yesterday, so you can read all lots of tragic writing on our blog at, at www.standuptragedy.co.uk. That is the end of the tragic admin, thankfully. <laughs> We're going to get straight on with, some, with our first performer. She's doing a show called 90s Woman at the Voodoo Rooms uh, from the 2nd to the 10th and the 12th to the 24th of August. Uh, and she's also going to be my, my guest on another show I do called Getting Better Acquainted. We're going to be in conversation on the 18th at the Royal Oak, and that's part of the Free Fringe. Both of those are part of the Free Fringe. So lots of free stuff that you can see. And what her name is, uh, that's the next thing I need to say. So put your hands together for Rosie Wilby, everybody! Oh, yes. Lower, lower the mic. Lower the mic for this small, this small woman. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Let's hear it for Dave. Oh, yes. Some tragedy. We all need some tragedy in Edinburgh. Oh, God. The weather's tragic already, isn't it? Um, so, yes. Hello. How are you? Good. Um, and so I, uh, I've done a lot of shows investigating relationships, um, tragic or otherwise. Um, even the happy ones turn tragic often, don't they? Um, so let's find out. Uh, give me a cheer if you are in a relationship. Because I particularly uh, like studying the bodily language between couples. Um, especially, you know, you see a couple and one of them is... Uh, oh, yeah, you're being careful not to touch now. She might be reading something into it. Yes, well, when couples are not touching, that's, that's the most telling, really, isn't it? Um, I had a married couple come to my show um, once in Edinburgh, and they were really annoyed that they both turned up to the same show. It was a total mistake on their itineraries. They're like, oh, bloody hell, you're here. Oh, God. They sat at opposite ends of the room. It's funny. Um, so, no, I love it. You know when you see a couple, and one of them is shorter than the other? I always find myself fascinated and thinking, how did they get together? Did their eyes meet across a seesaw? And, and height difference is, um, oh, I know that woman, um, is scientifically interesting, you know, because um, men often go for a woman who's shorter, women go for a man who's taller, even out in heterosexual relationships. But did you know, <laughs> I know this woman, but she's trying to, she's trying to interrupt. As much. No, she's not. She's lovely. She's lovely. It's, lo it's lovely, Chalequin. She's lost her umbrella. Oh, my, that is tragic. There's some tragedy. Come in, come in, people. Come in for the tragedy, people. There's like a sudden influx. You brought like a whole entourage. It's like, it's like a lesbian Sorry. Oh, she's got to go again. She's found her umbrella. Hooray, <laughs> she's found her umbrella. Okay, uh, so, so what I was saying is height difference. Are you guys in relationships who've just arrived? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's, <laughs> it's a happy relationship, that, isn't it? You can feel the... You'd hear the laugh there, couldn't you? In the weary, gritted teethness and bitterness of it. Yeah. No, so I was just saying, I love the um, body language between um, sort of couples where one is shorter or taller than the other. And um, height difference is interesting because men often go for a woman who's shorter. Women go for a man who's taller, even out in heterosexual relationships. But did you know, in the gay world... These desires men and women have for a taller or shorter partner actually carry over. And it's quite hard for a short lesbian to catch you have a slightly taller lesbian because she's looking for a taller lesbian than that. And it carries on and on. An endless spiral. And in some ways, it's quite good two gay people can't make a baby together because, think about it, runaway evolutionary theory would mean that lesbians would evolve and get taller and taller and taller and taller and taller. And gay men would get shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter until we couldn't possibly all coexist in the same society, could we? It would be ridiculous. People would be like, oh, Oh, the lesbians are coming, run away, they're going to crush us with their giant Dr. Martin boots. Pick up that little teeny tiny gay man, he can't run very fast with those tiny legs. Here's some, some Darwinian theory for you there. Uh, when I came out to my parents, actually, I, uh, I did it on April Fool's Day. I thought I'd have a good get out if they didn't like it, but it turns out they did. They were like, oh, our daughter's done something interesting. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's tragic, isn't it? But I, now I was the one who was all inhibited, didn't want everyone knowing. But they started going around telling all the neighbours, handing out flyers, printing up T-shirts, trying to get us all on Kilroy. My mum tried to tell me something about her and her friend Joan on holiday. Which I didn't want to hear. It was, it was disgusting. But I, I mentioned um, April Fool's Day, and every year my parents used to do this rubbish joke, actually. Um, I, get, I get up, I'll be half asleep, I'll be making a cup of tea, and they go, oh, Rosie, oh, Rosie, mind that big hole in the kitchen floor, mind that big hole in the kitchen floor. And I go, oh, and they go, April Fool, because there was no hole in the kitchen floor, yeah. <laughs> hilarious, hilarious joke. So one year, on the eve of April Fool's Day, I thought, right, I'm going to call their bluff, right? So I stayed up all night, digging and drilling a massive hole in the kitchen floor. And the next morning, right, I was taken into care. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, that's what happened. That's what happened. So, uh, yes, it is um, lovely to be up here at the Edinburgh Fringe. But um, the thing that I've noticed is because is it's so crazy, it's so manic the first few days of the Fringe, like running around in the rain with flyers. And, uh, is anyone performer here? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you hear that? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's hard work, isn't it? It's really, really hard work when you're promoting your own show, particularly if it's a one-person show like mine. It's, it's craziness. And you sometimes you forget to eat, don't you? You forget to eat. And you, you have to eat. So I was going to talk about tragic food for a moment, tragic food, uh, because you end up going to the worst kebab shop in the whole of the world, don't you? you think, where can I go to just get something? Oh, she's got a question. A macaroni and cheese pie. Oh, that sounds weird. I tell you what, I was at a festival the other day. This might even be worse. Um, when they had um, uh, like a fish finger, um, what was it? They had a fish finger stall and you could have a fish finger bap with waffles and baked beans. And uh, oh, I don't know, it was really weird. Was that your childhood? I don't know. But I wa what I wanted to share with you was um, the other day, I, I got something. Um, I got a quick food product I'd not bought for many a year since I was a student. And I wanted to ask if anyone had ever had one of these. Have you had one of these? Have you ever cooked one of these? I use cooked in the loosest sense of the word there. Although, I think you'll find um, that the preparation instructions for this product were actually more sophisticated than you might imagine. Yeah, and I'll share them with you. They're obviously aimed at demographic that no longer includes many of us. Um, <laughs> And it says that, number one, rip off lid. There's none of this waitrose, remove plastic lid. None of that sort of politeness. It's quite aggressive food preparation, isn't it, man? Rip off lid. Uh, whip out the sachet. Whip out the sachet. I don't even know. How do you whip out the sachet? Whip out the sachet. Add boiling water to fill level. Uh, leave alone for two minutes while you go and take crack. No. <laughs> I just popped that in. It didn't say that. It didn't say that. It's the Nigella recipe. No. <laughs> Uh, stir, leave for another two minutes, stir again. And then my favourite part, it says, find the sachet. <laughs> find the sachet. What kind of state would you have to be in to not know where the sachet that was in your own hand a mere four minutes and two stirs ago has gone to? Did you whip it out so vigorously it has now fallen down behind the bookcase? And Adcon said, uh, grab fork, I think they missed, wash up fork, and dig in. So that's a lovely, tasty, tasty treat, some tragic, tragic food there. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, other, um, what, what else can I show you? But I've got, um, I've just come up from London, well, I actually only came up, oh, yesterday, I don't even know what day it is anymore. I only came up yesterday, and um, do we have people from London? Yeah, yeah, and I, uh, I, I, I live in South London in the sort of neighbourhood where um, it used to be a bit rough. It's kind of going posh now, but it's the sort of neighbourhood where I was locked out from my flat recently. I was trying to wake my neighbour up. Another neighbour offered to help by firing an air rifle through the letterbox. <laughs> That's absolutely true. And there's another neighbour I flat sit for who's paranoid about getting her keys cut, so she always hides them in a really elaborate hiding place, then sends me a text message of where that is go to the cupboard around the side of the house where the electricity meters are, reach up onto the high shelf for a cracked flower pot. In the flower pot, you'll find a gardening glove. Inside the gardening glove will be the first in a series of riddles. <laughs> you'll need a compass, a spade, a map of the local area, and a Latin dictionary. Good luck. 
But no, when I, I came up on the train the other day, um, I noticed everyone was getting their little gadgets, their little iPods and iPads out of their iBags with their iHands. Because um, I'm worried, where's the new technology taking us? We're all going to be taken over by robots, aren't we? We, we, we? Humans, we'll be useless. We won't be needed, will we? So, you know, in a sort of answer to this, although I've got iPhones and iPads and all of that, I've started to embrace the old stuff as well. So, for example, when the woman next to me on the train got out her Kindle, I got out my Bayer tapestry. <laughs> Unraveled it. It's quite a boring one, actually. I haven't got to the bit yet where it gets the, you know, the arrow. In the eye. Hope you're not reading the same bear tapestry as me, because <laughs> that's probably a bit of a spoiler, isn't it? So we're just doing um, sort of little short bits. So I, I will probably um, go in, in a mo. Um, uh, as Dave said, I've got sh there's a few flyers dotted around the room for this Rosie Wilby '90s woman. It would be really amazing to see you there at um, midday. Well, just after midday, 12:05 at the Voodoo Rooms tomorrow and every day forever. Um, so do come along it'd be lovely to see you there and I'll just um, finish off with um, a little tip about well tragic kissing tragic kissing maybe not tragic kissing nice kissing who likes kissing yeah, yeah it's alright isn't it I asked another audience to like no <laughs> no we don't like I was like oh in Scotland maybe no foreplay just just get down to the sex I don't know um, I don't know what that voice was either um and, uh, no, but um, I love kissing. Um, it's my favourite part of sex, because at that stage there's still hope. <laughs> and um, in The Joy of Sex, right, it says, a good mouth-to-mouth -mouth kiss should leave its recipient breathless, but not asphyxiated. <laughs> so I'd like to, you know, I'd like to leave you with that um, as, as my sort of safe sex... Um, <laughs> advice, non-tragic love advice, um, I, and it'd be great to see you um, at my show or do stalk me on Twitter um, at Rosie Wilby because um, I've, only, only, I've only ever had one stalker and he was blind um, so, <laughs> so I didn't feel that flattering <laughs> so uh, do uh, keep in touch and enjoy the rest of the show, I have to sneak out um, but I shall try and do it more discreetly than that woman uh, <laughs> thank you very much <laughs> Thanks very much. Rosie Welby, everybody. Okay, so without further ado, let's move on to the next flavour of tragedy. I don't know what flavour it's going to be yet. It's exciting. Our mouths are watering. Actually, I should say, I've discovered another reason why I'm a host of stand-up tragedy. I like tragic food. That's all, right. all of the tragic food. I was like, yes, I am there. Um, right, so our next performer is Alex Hoyle. Uh, so put your, uh, yeah, put your hands together. <laughs> he hasn't got any, any show to promote, have you? You have? Oh, he'll, well, I haven't done my research very well for this next guest, but it's Alex Hoyle. Put your hands together for him. He'll tell you about his show, as well as do some tragedy. Hello. How are we doing, Edinburgh? Are we all right? Yeah. Well, my name's Alex Hoyle. Uh, I don't actually have any sort of tragic jokes to tell you tonight, but I was riding the bus into town this morning, and stuffed down the side of the seat, I found this little piece of paper. On that piece of paper, in felt tip, were some jokes written by what can I presume to be a, quite a young child. <laughs> I've got them here. Would you like to hear them? Yes. yes. Fuck yes. <laughs> I'm more excited about this than you are. This is a, they're amazing. Okay. <clears throat> Ready? Number one. Knock, knock. Who's there? Hello. Hello. Hello who? It's me. Your neighbour. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> and what they've done there is they've sort of misunderstood the idea of a joke. Just written a nice story. <laughs> the second one is my personal favourite. It's, uh, why did the chicken cross the road? I don't know. Why did the chicken cross the road? We all have secrets. <laughs> Sinister. <laughs> And the wonderful thing about this is that it's the entire evolution of comedy in three jokes. It goes from not understanding it, to sort of getting it, to full-blown satire. <clears throat> Last joke. What is the difference between a car, a car, and Mr. Davis? Oh, that was like a wonderful gestalt entity just then. You all did different bits of it. Right. What's the difference between a car and Mr. Davis? You can't drive to the park in Mr. Davis. 
Yeah, take that, Davis. Take that. Hit him right where it hurts. In his child-carrying capacity. So... Right, this, is, this seems genuinely lovely. I'm going to do something that's a bit different from my normal stand-up comedy. I'm going to tell a story. Are we up for that? Yeah! Brilliante. Oh, you're so wonderful. I love having you just stand there, by the way, Harv. Like sort of it's like a little peanut gallery of one man. <laughs> At any point I feel the show's not going well, I can just like, throw to you and be like, this audience, eh? <laughs> <laughs> what are they like? <laughs> so, I'm going to tell you a story now, and it's the sort of story I think you're going to know exactly if you want to hear the rest of it or not, based on the first sentence. When I was about 16, I used to work as a children's party clown for my local drug dealer. (laughs) (laughs) And we're in. Okay. So, when I grew up in Bristol, uh, which is a little city in the West Country, you might not have heard of it... Uh, and so when I was in Bristol, it's always a lovely place to live, Bristol. It's very hippie, it's very studenty. Like, if Bristol were founded today, the city crest would just be a picture of a 23-year-old man with a handlebar moustache weeping over a stolen bicycle. <laughs> How we work. Like, I was, walking, I was walking down the street the other day, because uh, I can afford it. Uh, and I saw something in Bristol that I think perfectly sums up the city for me. There was a bloke standing by some railings, chaining up his unicycle. Because Bristol is the kind of place where even the bike thieves are assumed to have a basic level of circus skills. <laughs> sort of how we work. So, enter me, 16. I had sort of long hair. I used to wear a lot of bright colours. I Basically, at the time, I was described as looking like a child's drawing of a sex criminal. <laughs> uh, you can imagine what that does for your self-esteem as a teenager. Uh, and I was at a party. Uh, and someone introduced me. Uh, they knew I was looking for a job at the time. Someone introduced me to a man called Dodgy Ken. Uh, which is not something a friend should do, is it? Like you would be at parties someone goes, oh, you need a quick loan? Let me show you to Legbreaker Leslie. <laughs> Babysitter? <laughs> Molesting Alan. Well, right in there. But they introduced me to Dodgy Ken. And Dodgy Ken was a local sort of, I guess you'd call him a geezer. Like, sort of thing you don't put down on your, your sort of job application's previous role. 20 years of geezering. Sort of don't really do. Uh, so he, what he'd done is he'd stolen several crates of circus props from the back of a van uh, and decided, in true entrepreneurial spirit to begin his own children's party business. Uh, And because none of this could be on the books, he decided to staff his clown shop entirely with disaffected local teenagers, of which I was one. Uh, And sort of the the tragedy here comes in, well, it's not sort of tragedy, it's bittersweet. Are we okay with bittersweet? Yeah. Yeah, Okay, Minecraft. (laughs) Half these fucking people. (laughs) What was your name? Lucy, nice to meet you. I'm going to check in with just if it's sort of. I'm going to check in with you throughout the story to see if it's meeting your requirements of sadness. Are we sad enough, Lucy? No. What if I died? No. That would be too sad. I'd be too sad. Okay. What if I was not dead but maimed? Oh. How maimed? How maimed? How maimed do you need me to be in this? I, you know what? Even if you're mildly maimed, I would okay. be sad enough. Well, thank you, Lucy. That's, that's that's genuinely very sweet of you. So. I worked at this clown agency for sort of several years when I was a teenager. And one of the people who worked at the clown agency was this girl called Brogan. Uh, Brogan is an, uh, an Irish name. Does anyone know what it's, what it's Gaelic for? Shoe. <laughs> Brogue, Brogan. Get it? Uh, so I can't really speak because my name is Alexander Hoyle. Uh, Alexander comes from the Italian for the man in the army who used to hold the shield, like the defending man. Uh, and Hoyle is an old sort of Nordic word, meaning uh, it's a topographical name, meaning it describes where you lived. And Hoyle means the guy who lives in the hole. So literally translated, my name is the guy who defends his hole. <laughs> Nothing if not accurate. So I sort of I met Brogan, and she was lovely. <laughs> so maimed yet? Oh no. Okay. Okay. These fucking people. <laughs> anyway, so I met Brogan, and so. We were sort of shuffled into several different tiers in the clown company. Uh, Brogan was a face painter. Uh, she was bloody good at it too, even though she only had one design. Uh, that design was Batman. Because Ken had only stolen black paint. <laughs> so what Brogan would do every party was she'd do a sort of black all over with a little window, sort of pale window for the mouth, like someone had pushed a minstrel into a 99. <laughs> uh, and you've not lived, trust me, until you've been at a birthday party where you've seen six or seven little girls in tutus all with face-painted to Batman, running around going, I am the knight! <laughs> Amazing. Now, I was normally a balloon artiste, uh, or as that's called, inflatable latex engineer. Uh, so I had loads of designs I could do. Uh, I could do snake in a cast, uh, bendless banana, 
Uh, and my personal favourite, sword without a handle. <laughs> the best kind. Uh, so there was one time in this uh, place called Clifton, which is the rich district of Bristol. We were doing a story in this three... We were doing a show in this three-storey townhouse. Uh, Ken was on the bottom, sort of dodgy dealing, seeing what the parents wanted selling to them. Uh, Brogan was on the first floor uh, doing face painting. And I was on the second floor doing balloon animals. And that week, Ken had acquired uh, a series of helium tanks for us. And on this helium tank I was using, the valve came loose and helium began shooting out all over. Now, helium is not a particularly volatile gas. If it shoots out, the worst it does is spin the tank around. I didn't know this, panicked, and threw the helium tank out of a window, <laughs> where it fell three stories straight onto the birthday boy, his dad's new car. <laughs> that was cruel, I admit. Uh, so I go down to Brogan. I'm crying at this point. It's like my face is just a rainbow of clown sludge. It's uh, and she suggests that we steal money from Ken's drug fund and just go and have a drink. <laughs> kind of girl she was. That's why I liked her. So we went to the local off-license. We bought a bottle of everything we could find, mixed them all together until the colours were pleasing to us. And then we went home and watched both of our favourite films as a double bill. Uh, hers, Cool Runnings. Yes. I know, right? And me, the 1970s hammer horror hit, uh, The Curse of Frankenstein. Uh, I don't know if you've ever watched those two films back-to-back while incredibly drunk, they form a new film. <laughs> when we're several sort of Jamaican scientists all get together to create the world's greatest bobsled abomination. <laughs> Just amazing. But we're cuddling up on her sofa. It might have been a squat and I think about it. No, it was, it was very romantic, trust me. We're cuddling together on a sofa watching these films. Peter Cushing was looking down on us. And I knew I wanted something to happen, but I was quite young at the time, I didn't really know what to do. So I sort of leaned over and I sort of said to her, the only thing I really could talk about at that point, which was 1970s horror films. I said, Brogan, have you ever seen The Thing? What thing? You know, The Thing, The Thing with The Thing in it. Oh, The Thing? Yeah, there was like a sequel that came out a couple of years ago. What was that called? The Thing. Okay, was it like a, there was a prequel that came out a couple of years before that, sort of in the 50s, and it was sort of based there. Did you see that? What was it called? The Thing. Okay, I know that sounds confusing, but basically, the thing about The Thing is it's not actually a remake of The Thing. It's actually more of a prequel to The Thing, following the exploits of The Thing before the events of The Thing. And the thing about that is that in the original The Thing, part of the appeal of The Thing in The Thing is you never knew exactly what kind of a thing The Thing was in The Thing, or what kind of things The Thing could do in The Thing. So by showing us more of The Thing in The Thing, The Thing actually takes away from all the things in The Thing that made The Thing in The Thing great. You know, which just flawed her. <laughs> and at that moment, she leaned in, and she kissed me. And it was my first kiss. And when she'd finished... So we woke up the next morning, and I sort of said to her, like, Brogan, why did you choose that moment? Why did you choose me? Choose me at that moment. And she said, well, I like you a lot, Alex. And I just couldn't think of any other way of getting you to shut the fuck up. <laughs> I've been Alex Hall. Thank you very much. Alex Hall. So uh, where is your show on, Alex? Yeah. There we go. Cowgate Head, every day, 1pm, four on demand. There we go. Okay, so our next... Are we all right, Harv? Something went weird with the sound. Yeah. We're okay, though, with some... We're underwater now with this tragedy. It's tragedy underwater. And that's very appropriate for our next performer. Uh, so our next performer, she's doing a show called Splitting the Mermaid. It's uh, on from the 1st to the 12th and the 14th to the 24th of, uh, of August, obviously, at the Underbelly. Uh, it's a paid show, but it's going to be really, really excellent, I am sure. Uh, so put your hands together, everybody, for Lucy Ayrton! Hello. Ah, oh, thanks, Dave. I will fly for you for this later. Um, it's um, The Little Mermaid, but the original version and also updated to 90s Hull. You guys like tragedy, so. I grew up in Hull in the 90s. My fingers know how to play Wonderwall on their own. Um, Okay, I'm going to do um, another little bit of tragedy, tragedy poetry story song um, for you now. So um, this is based on my research into fairy tales. I think fairy tales are very, 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 very exciting. Um, I am a big fan of tricking and lying to children. That's what I think you should do to them. And I think that fairy tales are the ultimate trick. They are a straightforward moral lesson wrapped up 
in a beautiful world of dragons and witches. Um, so I, I enjoy to use them, and I particularly like the ones that are warning stories. Um, so this is one that I ripped off Marie de France, who lived in, um, you know, France, um, back in the medieval days. And um, this is uh, one of the first ever romance stories. Um, it's called The Nightingale. There was once a little girl, or not a girl, a lady, and when she reached a certain age, she... Her father gave her to marry. And the night was nice enough. You know, all right, but not really the kind to make the middle of the night bright for her, not really right for her, just... Okay. Not long after her wedding day, the lady let her husband stay in bed while she fled out to the balcony to watch the sunset, and it was there she met with the other night. And she knew straight off the night next door was the one that she was looking for. This night was unlike anyone that she had ever met before. Her feelings were so clear, they were written out in semaphore, they could leave her breathless with a head tilt and a metaphor. She knew for sure this was it. But these two balconies they stood on, they didn't touch. There was just a little bit too much space between them for a handhold or a kiss. They were about this far apart. Close enough to throw a gift to, she was still too far from the other night's heart, so they started the sweetest affair. Her here, them there, both of them aware of her husband. And the nights grew warmer, and the days grew sweeter, and her love would meet her every night, and she'd gaze at the maze of her night's face in the moonlight and dream of a time when her love could hold her tight. But as the summer came to bloom, the brightness of the moon fell on her husband's face and he woke and realised his lady wasn't in her place. He saw the empty pillow still pressed in the shape of her head and strewn with the long loose hair she'd shed highlighted by a moonbeam. The worst sight he'd ever seen. When she came back to bed, he said to her, where were you, even though he knew? And his heart split into two bits, but what could he do? She said, there's a nightingale, darling, on the balcony. Can't you see? But he couldn't. She said, he's so near. Can't you hear? Can't you hear him sing? I'll let you spread your wings. I'll end your suffering. I'll give you anything. I'll sing until my very last breath stop. And he said, no, I can't. He rolled over but he didn't sleep. Every night that week, he stayed awake for the sake of his wife and wearing, hearing the words she spake to the other night, but she didn't know. So she'd still go out into the dark to tend to the spark of her and her new love and they'd be whispering and laughing and throwing kisses and neither of them knew that these weren't just mere misses, that they were caught. One day, the lady was sitting all sweet with her needlework when her husband came in with a smile and a bird in his hand and because she didn't know what he had planned, she said, darling for me and he said yes my pretty want to see and he opened up his hands just enough for a nightingale's head to poke out and sing i'll let you spread your wings i'll end your suffering i'll give you anything i'll sing until my very last breath stops the lady, all guilt and happiness, reach outs and runs her fingers along the nightingale's chest, but he pressed his hands into the bird's neck. The lady prayed he'd let the nightingale go, but no. He snapped its neck. And he looked at his lady and said, What did you expect? Did you think I'd let anything get between my lady and her good night's good night's sleep? And as he threw the bird down and left the chamber, she began to weep. She knew she had to keep away from her love from then on. She knew the next time would be her neck. Or worse. So, she sewed her story on the cloth she was holding and tear glittered gold thread and at the end, a warning. No more meeting. Or we're both dead. That night, she went out onto the balcony and threw the nightingale over to the place she knew her night would be and left so she didn't have to see them open it. So she didn't have to see them.
for last time. The night, that night, came out, looked across and then down. Frowning, they picked up the package, opened it and read the shroud and for an hour after carried the bird around very, very gently. Eventually, they had the nightingale locked up in a tiny golden coffin and tied it on their armor as a reminder that love is always beautiful, even when it's dead. As a reminder of the time the nightingale said, I'll let you spread your wings, I'll end your suffering. I'll give you anything I'll sing until my very last breath stops. I'll let you spread your wings. I'll end your suffering. I'll give you anything I'll sing until my very last breath. Thank you. Lucy Ayrton, everyone. I mean, it seems to me my, that sort of problem gets a bit better solved if you just sort of open up your relationship and sort of uh, see lots of different nightingales, lots of different birds. <clears throat> uh, but, you know, that's my, just my personal opinion. Uh, so, <laughs> on this awkward moment, I'm going to now uh, carry on to introduce someone whose show is called Awkward Prophet. Uh, and it's on from the 1st to the 11th and the 13th to the 25th. Uh, of August. I'm, I don't know why I'm going to get confused the whole month, what month we are in. Uh, but there we go. Uh, that's at 4.20. And it's at the, also, that's at the under, Underbelly Bristow Square. So put your hands together, everyone, for Jaws Norris! Montages. 
montages in films of relationships have, I think, given me a really misleading impression of what a relationship is. <laughs> because a montage makes it look like you're always having fun. And that's it, you're, like, it's a sequence of good stuff. But in real life, any relationship inevitably eventually gets to the point where you are just sat in the same room as another woman. Uh, and, <laughs> and no. <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> as a woman, as a woman, uh, reading. You're just both reading, and that's it, that's the relationship. And whenever it gets to that point for me, I, I lose it a bit. I just sort of go, right, okay, what do you want? <laughs> what do you want? What do you want? Because I'm, I'm reading. I don't know if you know this, but I'm, I'm reading. <laughs> What's in this for you? <laughs> and they don't like that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I started trying to lead a series of relationships that deliberately mimicked montages, because I thought then that would at least give me what I want. But then that resulted in a lot of very confused women. Like, a lot of them went, why, uh, why are we always coming out of cinemas? <laughs> <laughs> We've never seen a film together. <laughs> well, you keep arranging situations where we come out of the cinema laughing, like you planned it. I am, so... Um, I've got one specific dating story and then, a, and then a bit of a more personal bit. Last year, there was this girl who... Uh, I thought we were seeing one another. It turns out we were just friends. Who knew? Okay. Um, <laughs> they get you like that, don't they? Bloody, bloody women. Anyway. Uh, I, this girl, and I took her to Brighton to see my favourite children's writer, John Classen, read his book. Because I know how to date ladies and gentlemen. And then after we watched that, I took her to the beach, and it's a pebble beach on Brighton. And I genuinely did it. I, uh, I buried her up to her neck in rocks. <laughs> because I thought that would be romantic. I thought it would be a romantic thing to do. And then I could swoop in and kiss her. And then at the last minute, I realised, oh wait, no, that's, that's entrapment. <laughs> I've got her now, and I've removed crucial element of choice <laughs> from, from the romantic arena. And I had a proper little freak out about the boobs, right? Because, I don't know, okay, somebody might not know this, has anybody ever tried to bury a woman alive in rocks? <laughs> no, no, none of you, none of you. You don't know what you're missing. But, um, right, I, I had a little panic because I thought, when a woman is lying down, she is convex, right? Physically. And I thought they're going to be hard because the pebbles are going to going to roll off. Going to roll off. What do I do? And then I thought, but just cross that bridge when you come to it. All right. For God's sake, don't pay them too much attention now, because <laughs> you'll look like a creep. Just do that when you have to. Which was fine up to a point, but it meant that eventually she ended up covered from head to foot in pebbles, <laughs> with two boobs sticking out. <laughs> and she went, what are you going to do there? But I went, oh, I'm going to do them now. Sorry. <laughs> um, I've got a bit longer to do one more little bit. Okay, but, uh, the, the thing that all this comes down to that I've been trying to wrap my head around is this basic, with me there's this basic sort of fear of intimacy and of, um, hold on. <laughs> Sex. <laughs> have, you heard, have you heard about this? Who's heard about it? Anybody? Anybody heard? Yeah. Oh, no, bloody hell, yeah, all of you. Oh, bloody hell. Filth. Absolute filth. <laughs> Didn't used to be there. It wasn't in the films of our childhood. Nobody fucked in the land before time. <laughs> and yet, who's seen Frozen? It's a fucking porno, son. <laughs> Absolute filth. Um, right, I, right, so, okay, I'm trying to get my head around this, this thing. Because with me, at some root level, I just seem to think that sex is an inherently disrespectful act. That's, that's my cross to me, that's for me to sort out in therapy. But genuinely, I couldn't do it to somebody I liked. <laughs> that's it, couldn't do it to somebody I liked. Because think about what it is. You wouldn't do it to a mate. <laughs> if you had a spare hour, you wouldn't be like, mate, what are you doing now? Should we eat fuck? You know, you just wouldn't. You wouldn't do it. I, I, think that, I, think that like, I think sex is a lot like ice skating in that the minute you look at your feet, you're fucked. Like, as, long as, you don't, as long as you don't think about the fact that you're ice skating, you could skate for days. But then the minute you think, wait a minute, what am I, what am I doing? <laughs> Boom, you're down. You're down on the ice with a broken bum. <laughs> Same thing with sex. Uh, well, I've talked myself into a bit of a corner here. <laughs> that's, part of, that's part of the show that then leads into a, to a longer outro that, that helps me get back to a, to a funny bit without everybody thinking that I'm deeply troubled. <laughs> so I guess the only way I can back out of this corner without going into a much longer bit is just to, to say, I am fine. I'm fine. <laughs> completely fine. I'm very happy. So uh, don't, don't worry about it. I mean, there's more context for that in the bullshit. <laughs> 
everybody. So that's, that's a consummate professional that I am. I, I always check with my sound engineer if things are recorded right in front of a whole audience because that's, ah, uh, yeah. I am tragic. That's why I do this show. And I'm, I'm all right, too. Uh, so our next and last uh, tragic performer uh, does, is doing a show called Bridie Lee Kennedy Repeats on You, which kind of gives away her name... It, but, you know, I'll still do the rest before that, uh, which is on from the 1st to the 12th and the 14th to the 24th of August. I'm getting that right now by this stage in the show. Uh, at 3.45, I was momentarily confused by the 24-hour clock there, as we all are being quite regularly, I'm sure, at the festival, uh, at the Cowgate Head. So put your hands together for Bridie Lee Kennedy! I was walking uh, to my local tube station, rare sunny day in London, I had stars in my eyes, pocket full of debt, standard, um, and I had my headphones in, and I was like listening out to the kind of hip-hop that I pretend that I don't own when I talk to my feminist friends, and um, I got this tap on my arm. So I turned, and there was this really handsome guy uh, in his 20s, and, and he looked at me and went, He said the following. Hello. I have uh, seen you walk the street many times. <laughs> I am a uh, saucer instructor. <laughs> and from the first time I saw your legs, and you we must dance together. <laughs> I'm not usually attracted to curvy women. <laughs> but for your legs, I make an exception. <laughs> I'm Marco. Okay, so Marco followed me onto the tube. And for reasons that I can't fully explain, but I think have something to do with homesickness and possibly Piccadilly line-induced oxygen deprivation, I gave him my number. <laughs> so that's the first tragic thing I'm going to tell you. I actually gave this guy my number. Um, now, I say I don't really understand the reasons, but looking back, I think I thought this might be my meat cute. Like, this might be my full-on rom-com meet-cute. And as illogical as I know it is, I still have this great idea that it would be amazing to just look across a room or be stopped outside a Sainsbury's and just have this, like, real deep connection with someone straight away, even though Twilight tells me that's called imprinting and it's something werewolves do on babies. <laughs> <laughs> and that James Blunt song set on a tube is really creepy. Um... But I do, I do also put this down to the fact that I also was very influenced by fairy tales when I was younger. Um, and when I, like you said, hmm, just the two of us. <laughs> not, not common, not common with children. Um, so I, uh, uh, I, especially little girls. Um, so I am actually going to read you. I started writing fairy tales a little while ago because uh, the old ones weren't doing it for me anymore. Uh, so I am, if, so, is it okay that I've run fairy tale fairy tale? Yes. Oh, lovely. This is the only gig I've ever done where I've had to go, I know we've already had a fairy tale. <laughs> but if I could just give you another one. Uh, so it's lovely. Uh, this is a fairy tale I wrote a little while ago. It's called The Sad-Eyed Boy. Not about Jaws, uh, in case anyone was worried. <laughs> Once upon a time, there was a beautiful princess. <laughs> yeah, all right, maybe not like Middleton, beautiful. Kate, that is not Pippa, nice ass, but not my taste. But she did okay. She smiled a lot, and she laughed easily, and she had the eyebrows of a young Brooke Shields. <laughs> <laughs> or, according to a particularly evil stepsister, a young Tom Selleck. <laughs> e either way, she was a princess, and she went to many balls and enjoyed dancing with her friends and more than a few princes. 
One of these princes was kind and danced well. He made the princess laugh and asked her opinions on matters of importance, and he chose her first to dance at every ball. One night, he asked her if she'd like a lift home in his pumpkin. But the princess was young and reckless, and she liked to walk, so she demurred. Hmm, gonna be honest, word I've only ever seen written down. She said no? <laughs> Gently? I think that's what that means. <laughs> anyway, she left alone at midnight, and she, as she descended the steps outside the ballroom, she tripped and stubbed her little toe. The one on her left foot. A boy stepped out of the darkness and caught her and held her steady. He wasn't a prince, but he had been waiting at the foot of the steps for her, for, he said, but he wasn't fit to kiss her slipper. He hoped she may look past his station and take his hand. His station did not concern her, but his melancholy did. Still, out of kindness, she took his offered orchid, and she sniffed. And in an instant, she was under the spell. The sad-eyed boy followed his princess home that night and moved quickly into the castle. He filled it with the orchids imbued with his scent, and from the moment the princess woke to the second she fell asleep, he was all she breathed in. He cursed every mirror on every wall, so when the princess gazed into them, they showed only her faults. They showed them, and they magnified them, until the princess could see nothing else, even when she closed her eyes. She closed her eyes often, and when she did, the sad-eyed boy would find her, and take her hand, and tell her that the mirrors told the truth. He loved her anyway. Every day he drew closed another curtain on another of the castle's windows and gradually her vibrant rooms fell to perpetual dust. One afternoon at 3pm, after many months inside the grey castle walls, a knock came at the door. The princess stirred, but the sad-eyed boy shook his head and rose instead. The princess listened as he opened the door, and she recognised the voice of the visitor. It was the kindly prince who had always asked her to dance first at the ball. The light from the open door snaked into the room in which she was seated and touched her little toe the one on her left foot. It felt warm and strained, and she strained to hear the words being exchanged at the door. She heard the kindly prince say, Princess! And then a slam. The light scampered away from her toe and hid before the sad-eyed boy could catch it. It wasn't gone. It was simply waiting for her, just outside the door. From that day, every day at 3pm, the kindly prince would knock on the princess's door. The sad-eyed boy didn't answer, and he forbade the princess from doing so with a silent look, but she began to wait every day for those knocks. Her little toe, the one on her left foot, would tingle, remembering its good fortune as the only part of her to be touched by light in many months. And her hands would sweat, as they did on so many hot, loved nights, when the kindly prince would choose her first to dance. Every day at 3 p.m., a knock at the door. Every day the princess told herself she would answer, but then she would breathe in, and the scent of the sad-eyed boy would make her mother's life. She would look in the mirror and see her grotesqueness through the castle's dusk, so she did not answer, and the sad-eyed boy would find her and take her hand. Uh, and then one day the princess did answer the door and the prince was there and she like jumped on the back of his horse and they ran off to his way bigger, way better castle where they got married and had loads of kids and she got to sleep with everyone on her celebrity safe list including early years Marlon Brando and that guy from Art Attack and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> 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 that's not quite true. It's actually Lady Years Marlon Brando but people find that weird for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, none of that's true. That's that's not how the story ends. <laughs> the prince knocked every day for weeks, and then months, and then years. And then one day, the prince stopped. 3 p.m. came and went, and there was no knock at the door. The princess was distraught, and the sad-eyed boy was happy, or as happy as someone with those eyes can be. <laughs> the princess waited for the knock to come back, but every day the castle became more silent. Then one day, the princess slipped on a curtain she wanted the castle. It fell from its rings and the room, her bedroom, was filled with light. It hit first her little toe, 
the one on her left foot, and then it raced up her whole body. It bounced off the walls and hit the orchids, killing them instantly. It cracked every mirror in the house and it knocked the sad-eyed boy flat on his back. The princess watched her prison shatter, and she knew what she had to do. She raced down the stairs, threw open the door and ran as fast as she could to the castle of her kindly prince. She skidded through his gate, stormed up his path, and she saw... The princess was also beautiful, maybe not middle too beautiful, but she did okay. <laughs> and this princess carried lilies and a mirror that said nothing at all. And they lived happily ever after. The end. So in case you're wondering, that's how guys like Marco get photos. <laughs> <laughs> As this was a first night, there were some occasional first night technical quips and my outro, my what they call the bucket pitch, my bucket speech, which is where I'm trying to get people to give money because the free fringe is free for the audience to come in and see shows at, but it's not free for the performers to take the shows to Edinburgh because we still have to pay, I mean, we don't have to pay the free fringe anything. We don't have to pay for the venue, but we still have to pay a lot of money for accommodation. And it's £400 to get in the big fringe brochure, for example, which is something. And this year, you know, I lost my job and things are going tragically for me. So I'm a struggling person. So what goes in the bucket is very useful. And so if you do come to one of our shows, please put a few pounds, if you can afford it, into the bucket at the end. And if you can't afford it, then spread the word about us, tweet about us, uh, tell your friends, that sort of thing. Write reviews on the Edinburgh website. That's really useful too. Uh, and the other thing I was saying in my in my outro speech live was that in London we theme the shows. And at Edinburgh they've kind of been forming their own themes. So I think the show you've just listened to may be Tragic Fairy Tales. The show after that, the second night, was Tragic Class really that's what it was all about and then the third night was kind of awkward tragedy so and as it goes on i'm sure new themes will happen every single night and i'm going to be on the facebook event i'm going to be doing a little report back on how each night went Uh, so have a look out there and get an idea of how things are going we've got some really fantastic performers coming up we've got gronier mcguire we've got eddie peppertone we've got some really exciting people who are going to be performing with us and sharing their kind of tragedy with us some of the sound quality towards the end of the show may be not as as good as the at the start of the show sometimes performers choose not to use microphones because it's a very small room but obviously that just means that there's a slightly lower quality sound that we can get out of it especially because you know in that room there are sort of machinery buzzes from uh, the amps and stuff like that that get picked up uh, by the room mics and uh, when we have to turn people up that's what that's what happens tragic sound information there you go so don't forget you can follow us on twitter at stand up for tragedy you can like us or friend us on facebook make friends with some tragedy and you can check out everything about us on our podcast and on our website www.standuptragedy.co.uk This podcast was put together by me with the sound recorded by the excellent Stephen Harvey and the music was by Samuel Wilkinson and George Bond. For now, the tragedy is over.